From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Emeritus Rabbi Jack Moline in Washington. The religious impulse, the religious experience is both intensely personal and also social. And so recognizing that I may have very strong convictions about the truth for me, but that truth is not going to be the same for everyone. And so how do I figure out a way to construct a society where my neighbor's beliefs are as importantly recognized as my own? This month, the Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch takes his seat as the next president of Interfaith Alliance. At such a critical moment for true religious freedom in this country and for democracy itself, you'll hear part two of a conversation among Paul and two presidents emeriti of the Alliance, Reverend Welton Gaddy and me. Looking back at 24 years of cumulative history leading the organization, as well as 16 years of State of Belief Radio. The battle before us is now even bigger than the battle behind us. So here we go. I'll let that stand as a thematic statement and from my heart a devotional statement. A gratitude to God and also gratitude to so many of God's people who have helped to make this day possible. Some people really thought the political religious right would declare mission accomplished after eviscerating Roe v. Wade. Oh, ye of little cynicism. At least for the influential Southern Baptist Convention, this was just the beginning, just a sign from above that they're doing God's work. A comprehensive look at what makes them so convinced and what they openly are setting their sights on next recently appeared in The Nation magazine under the headline, The Southern Baptist Conventions Deal with the Devil. And we'll hear from the author, investigative journalist Sarah Posner. What we're looking to do is, if you come in to helpherehealed.org, we have a Get Help link. And within three to five days, you're going to have your first appointment. Um, I think that when you've decided to make that step, it's it's urgent to to follow up and get you in for those services immediately. Legal remedies for people sexually abused as children are notoriously difficult to come by. But more difficult still is accessing the support and treatment necessary for recovery by survivors. One man stepping up to create a solution for those most in need is Todd McKay, founder of Help, Hear, Heal. And we'll get a look at this new initiative on this week's State of Belief Radio. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and if it walks like a duck. Last week, the hilariously named Family Research Council's All-Star Pray Vote Stand Summit offered a predictable torrent of anti-Biden, anti-gay, anti-diversity, and anti-democratic talking points. But as a bellwether of the ever-widening self-serving definition of religious freedom and assumed supremacy of Tony Perkins-style authoritarian Christianism, the panel on ESG stood out. Why, you might ask, is a multi-million dollar dark money outfit demanding church status for tax purposes devoting time at a midterm election year summit to bashing corporate, environmental, social governance policies on race? By now, the only answer possible is because they can. And bringing their obedient supporters together around race bashing says a lot more about these white nationalist theocrats than I, or even the SPLC's designation of FRC as a hate group, ever could. A number of faith leaders have taken notice of Florida, Texas, and Arizona governors heartlessly kidnapping undocumented migrants and wasting millions of dollars to fly or bust them across the country in a political stunt that requires a certain level of savagery to applaud. But in the face of loud applause from the savage right, the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops called the act disconcerting 
and a Texas bishop tweeted that, quote, the degrading disrespect with which immigrants are treated in this country, like pawns in games of political showmanship, is a disgrace. Ron DeSantis of Florida, Greg Abbott of Texas, and Doug Ducey of Arizona are all self-identified Catholics. Whatsoever you do, brothers. And with nothing else to do, and the seemingly limitless resources of far-right law firm Liberty Council at her disposal, homophobia poster child Kim Davis continues to clog the courts with appeals purportedly aimed at clearing her name. These motions are important to watch because even her filings articulate that the landscape for what gets to be called religious freedom, footnote see the artist formerly known as bigotry and discrimination, is shifting so rapidly that what was clearly illegal seven years ago ought now to be recognized as a constitutionally protected expression of Davis's deeply held religious beliefs. And I shouldn't snark that Davis has nothing else to do. Why, just a few years ago, she was touring places like Romania as the world's spokesmonster against marriage equality when that country's parliament was trying to preemptively pass a one-man, one-woman referendum. P.S. It failed. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very heartfelt thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guests. The Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is the newly minted president of Interfaith Alliance. A writer, editor, and religious activist, Paul has spent time in academia as well as leadership positions at Huffington Post Religion and BeliefNet. The non-sectarian nature of that work made it inherently interfaith. After years in a senior position at Auburn Seminary, most recently Paul was with Interfaith America. Paul is in New York City. State of Belief listeners certainly know longtime host Reverend Welton Gaddy well. President of Interfaith Alliance from 1998 to 2015, Welton joins us from his home in Monroe, Louisiana. And I had the pleasure to lead Interfaith Alliance from 2015 until earlier this year. So we've got a lot of institutional memory in this conversation. I don't want it to be just an interview, rather a discussion that explores how Interfaith Alliance was born for a time such as this, and how stories and public conversations can help engage Americans with the critical work of defending true religious freedom and democracy itself. Welton and Paul, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Great to be with you. You know, uh, I'm a long way from being 21 years old. Welton, you're just a little farther away, and Paul, you're significantly closer. But I wonder what what each of us would say to the 21-year-old version of ourselves just about to embark on adulthood, knowing what you know now. And what that 21-year-old would think of the person you've become. Welton? I would say don't, don't fear change. Don't fear going somewhere you've never gone. Be open to it. If you need to say, no, nah, I don't want to do that, okay. But if you find what's new, it's, it's like finding a new God. It's knowing what all of this is about. And I don't 
ever, ever want to go back. Paul, what about you? I was a religion major who was using a lot of drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol and really interested in rock and roll. And I had a, I had a record company. I guess that would have been in a couple of years. So I, I majored in religion. <laughs> I, I, my line was, I want to major in something I will never use. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be, a, you know, I was like, okay, I, I, you know, I'm going to be, I'm in a liberal arts school. I'm going to major in something that will, I will never use professionally. And, you know, we, you know, it's like God laughs. Uh, but, but, you know, um, follow your heart, care for yourself as much as possible, and um, believe that this yearning is real, this yearning for connection, this yearning for a, a divine, um, some kind of uh, connection with the divine, and um, and trust that. And, and you know, you're going to go through it, but you're going to come out and you're going to know more. And I don't regret a single day of that. I, and part of my recovery was how I got here, you know, which was a long, you know, I, I spent a long time coming to grips with addiction. And, and that was in 25. And here I am. Gosh, I, you know, I can't do the math. 33 years later. But, you know, it is, uh, it's been a blessing. And you're never beyond uh, the reach of the divine is, is basically what I would tell my 21-year-old self. And I think I knew that. But I had I had a lot of uh, journey to go through before I got here. Nice, nice. And Jack, what about you? Thanks, Jack, <laughs> for asking that question. Um, I think I probably would have told my 21-year-old self, let yourself be loved. Uh, I didn't realize how hard I was resisting it back then. And uh, I think that even though it took me probably close to 40 or 50 years to come around to it, uh, uh, I I would have been admiring of how it eventually uh, was worth it uh, when I finally let go and, and stopped trying to prove myself and just let myself be accepted. Uh, I think thing. that's a good thing. So this is a question for both of you, for all of us, really. How does the role of the faith leader and the intimate way that leads us to connect with some of the people we serve Equip us to better understand the needs of society as a whole. Paul, what do you think? The religious impulse, the religious experience is both intensely personal and also social. And so recognizing that I may have very strong convictions about the truth for me. But that truth is not going to be the same for everyone. And so how do I figure out a way to construct a society where my neighbor's beliefs are as importantly recognized as my own and that we can live together in a way that mutually um, offers dignity and also a way to um, function together? And I think that's where we are in some ways, you know, at a, at a crossroads right now is figuring out the, the way we can be together, even if we disagree. And um, so the fact that I've served people uh, in a pastoral uh, capacity that um, 
have needs that maybe other people may not quite understand. And maybe I can offer a way for a a wider swath of a society to understand what it is to be um, either LGBTQ or perhaps another, uh, you know, being in, in deep conversation with people with different immigration status. What does that do for me in a way that I can help, help society understand um, without taking over someone else's voice, why this is an important religious issue and, and not purely a secular function? And, and Welton, you pastored a church in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, going back there almost every Sunday when we, you were president of Interfaith right. Alliance. What was it about that that equipped you to serve the, the needs of society as a whole in a better situation? I, I didn't know how it would go, but, but, but it went fine. You, you know that. What happened with me was I, I learned, actually, I learned from the show something that I had never thought about. I I thought I would be walking away from what I was doing in in the pulpit. And I found that people who are not religious want to know about religion. They want to, because they're actually wanting to look at it and see what's going to come on next and what they might have to fight. uh, Like how, they can be who they are and we can be who we are. And um, I wouldn't ever not want to have gone there because I found more people in other religions helping me than I would ever imagine. And, and Jack, I'll just take you for an example. I, I will never forget the kind of conversations that you and I had about where I came from and where you came from. And in the hardest times, in the hardest times, you ministered to me when our son died. You ministered to me in a way that nobody else could. Now, I want to live in a kind of world in which people reach out to each other in that way. Thank you, Welton. Thank you for, for saying that, and thank you for, for being so open and honest about that. We, we could probably keep at this conversation for a long time. I have a list of another eight or ten questions here that I'm supposed to ask you, uh, but what that means, Paul, is that uh, you're just going to have to have Welton and me back sometime uh, in the coming the coming months. But that uh, leads me into the question, Paul, about uh, state of belief uh, and the changes that may take place. Listeners, you've probably figured out that, uh, as Welton explained a couple of weeks ago, he's going to be a less of a presence on the show, and I'm trying very hard to be retired at my wife's urging, uh, which means that we're going to hear more from Paul and less from Welton and me in the in the in the weeks and months ahead, what would you like to see state of belief evolve into, Paul? What, what's your vision for effectively conveying the stories and the ideas that will help galvanize people around the incredibly important work of Interfaith Alliance and its 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 mission now, not just to protect faith and freedom, but to protect democracy? I think at its core, it's going to feel very, very similar 
in the sense that we are going to be bringing on people, asking them questions about what me what what's most meaningful for them. These I'm hoping to have people who are represent the kind of swath of um, glorious people who have already been on the show, artists, politicians, faith leaders, uh, scientists, and to ask them continue to put in front of them the question, what does it mean to um, have the most, your, the, what is most important to you recognized uh, f- from across society? How do you exercise your own moral conscience about issues uh, that face you? And how can we navigate that so that everyone can have that right? Uh we're in an inflection point in our society, and I, I hope to have a lot of experts on democracy and um, how we can uh, inoculate against Christian nationalism, for instance. Um, I, my, my goal will be to, to have this be part of the, the, the great conversation and then to have Interfaith Alliance be a place where we can um, – create programs and opportunities for everyone to engage in their own community on the issues that matter most, which is personal freedom of conscience and religion, as well as protecting democracy and all its manifestations. So I am, I'm looking forward to making a strong connection between what we're doing at the organization and this show and lifting up voices who are going to help imagine a future you know, I, I, I love the idea of um, offering people, a, you know, a radio show that um, offers voices that are filled with hope while not being Pollyanna. <laughs> and I think that that's what we have, we have done. I, I, love, I love the idea, and I meant to say this earlier when Welton was talking about Rachel Maddow. My guess is that Welton was asking Rachel Maddow questions that no one else was going to ask Rachel Maddow. And that's what I want this to be, is like a place where people who have deep convictions, but no one's asking them about those convictions, a place where they can share those. Uh, and so it, it's an exciting moment. Uh, the other thing is that we will be trying to make sure that this show gets exposed in as many ways as possible, um, using the technology, digital technology, as well as the airwaves to... Um, Try to reach as many people as possible uh, with this important um, vision, this important program. And so uh, stay tuned, but um, I, I want to offer this um, pledge that you will recognize this show going f- forward uh, because I, I want to um, honor the, the great contributions of uh, Reverend Welton and, and Rabbi Jack uh, and, and honor them and, and move that, carry them forward. Well, I'm glad you said something about asking questions uh, that no one else will ask because that's where we're going next. There are conversations, Paul, that uh, you should be having with Welton and with me in private. Uh, but what can these two old guys uh, share with you that would benefit our listeners right now on the air. That's great. And I, I was totally unprepared for it. And so I'm going to go with my, what is the essential DNA of Interfaith Alliance? How would you describe it? 
What is the what is the sin qua non the building blocks of this organization so that we can you know, so that 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 feels really um, present? What do you think, Welton? I think it's uh, what we talk about a lot. We want to know how to bring uh, religion, politics, and uh, society uh, together. How how can we bring this? Because honestly, where we are now, um, we need that more than ever before, as I see it. Great. So, Paul, I'm going to answer your question about yeah. the DNA of Interfaith Alliances, sort of my parting words, too. I know that there are probably uh, heads of other organizations that would disagree with what I'm about to say, but I really believe it. Interfaith Alliance is the only organization in America right now that faithfully believes in the Constitution and constitutionally believes in faith. And that's what makes us unique among all of the advocacy groups. As a matter of deeply held belief of, of principles that I think are defensible, um, we believe that the Constitution guarantees freedom of conscience for people who are both adherents of religion and and who just simply have a philosophy of life that doesn't fit neatly into uh, a religious context. And I also believe that the people who are willing to join in this effort with us are people whose faith demands that they seek the common good. And that means supporting the guarantees and the structures that our Constitution demands for creating a more perfect union. That's what makes us unique, and that that is what has enabled us to maintain our mission and keep in our lane through the the enormous changes that have happened in American society uh, in the 26, 27 years that Interfaith Alliance has had the privilege of uh, mixing in the public conversation. So I I wish you you the best because I think I think that's that's the essential effort that we that we have. Exactly. May I may I just say one quick thing before we go? Um, you know, when you've done something for a long time and you have work that is everything in your life uh, that you want to happen, and then you retire, um, that's hard when you don't know what's going to come next and how what comes next helps what you've done or what else. This time, I can now breathe because Jack and now Paul know exactly what this is about. And I breathe healthily to know that. And I will always be as helpful as I can be with you, Paul. That means so much to me. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you many times in the future. And I appreciate your blessing. Welton, keep breathing. That's all I want from you. Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch is president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, defending true religious freedom for all. At 10 o'clock a.m. on Wednesday, September 28th, Paul will host a briefing on Capitol Hill entitled Christian Nationalism on the Ballot, featuring Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, Reverend Dr. Richard Sizek of Evangelicals for Democracy, 
Connie Ryan of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, Wajahat Ali, author, commentator, and activist, and voting rights advocate Taylor Coleman. For information about joining the live stream of this event, please visit interfaithalliance.org. Paul and Welton, thank you for taking this time to get together. I wish we had another hour or two to do this. Thank you both. This has been an absolute pleasure, an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you, Paul. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, investigative journalist Sarah Posner. Her new piece in The Nation is headlined, The Southern Baptist Conventions Deal with the Devil. And later, Todd McKay, founder of Help, Hear, Heal. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I confess I would love to hear Welton conduct the next interview with his deep and painful history with the Southern Baptist Convention. He disaffiliated when things took a dark turn into the deeply political. But today, things are only darker and way more impactful on the everyday lives of every single person in this country. With an urgent warning headlined, The Southern Baptist Convention's Deal with the Devil, investigative journalist Sarah Posner delves into the ever more empowered political religious rights superpower of our time exploring what they now want us to become and the tools they are ready to use to make that happen. Sarah, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me again, Jack. I think a lot of Americans naively thought that, well, the loss of Roe was unthinkable, but at least this will finally shut up those extremist theocrats. But you report that nothing can be further from the truth. Is that right? That is right. They are they are only energized by the Dobbs decision. We're going to see a lot of efforts to try to criminalize both doctors and women, doctors who perform abortions, women who have abortions, and even as we've seen already in Texas and elsewhere, um, trying to criminalize anyone who helps a woman get an abortion, either driving her or any number of uh, things that might help her um, obtain an abortion. You start your article with quotations from the head of their flagship seminary, uh, Albert Moeller, talking about not only the end of Roe v. Wade, but a wholesale shift in what the Supreme Court should be all about. So I want to ask you about his words to the Anaheim, California meeting of the Southern Baptists about criminalizing abortion nationwide. What's the quote? Well, he said, um, there are many cases in which demonstrably there is not just an abortionist who should face criminal consequences, but a woman seeking an abortion. He says that is something we believe the law should pursue. Wowee. And, and so with that in mind, here's a clip from his June 24th podcast to which you refer in the article. And so what you have here really is a reversal of a revolution. So put this in historical context. It's not just about abortion, but praise be to God, it is about ending abortion as a national supposed right. But as we're thinking about the jurisprudence, we need to understand that what these majority justices went at was the very idea that rights can be invented by the court and declared to be on equal standing with the rights that are enumerated in the Constitution. 
This is not about religion or religious freedom. It's about fundamentally redefining our democracy itself, isn't it? Right. So Moeller is expressing a view that's not uncommon on the religious right, that the Supreme Court in uh, decisions like Roe and Griswold versus Connecticut, in which it struck down laws criminalizing the sale of contraception, or in Obergefell v. Hodges, Mm -hmm. in which the court found a right to uh, marriage equality nationwide. The religious right and the right writ large insists that these rights were not enumerated in the Constitution, and therefore um, the court should not be finding them or creating them out of whole cloth. So when Mueller talks about that, he's not just talking about the overturning of Roe and the potential criminalization of doctors and women across the country. He's talking about the quest of the right to get the court to overturn other rights, like the right to contraception or the right to marriage equality. There, there seems to be a sense that the Constitution and the rights it enumerates are subject to veto by their interpretation of the Bible, which supersedes the Constitution. Is, is that an accurate statement? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. They adopt the quote-unquote originalist view that if the right is not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, then the court should not find that there is such a right conferred by the Constitution. Um, They layer on to that originalist argument that not only does the Constitution not enumerate these rights, but the Bible specifically prohibits them in their view. Um, Obviously, the theological question is also debatable. Um, So they're kind of combining this originalist view of the Constitution with a fundamentalist view of the Bible to say that the Supreme Court should not find these rights. And we say that they're not rights based on our reading of the Bible. How important is this confession that the goals of the SBC and their ilk are not just to preserve whatever values and restrictions they publicly define as traditional, but in fact to radically redefine our culture and our nation in a way that I think would leave them unrecognizable? Or or is the general public just likely to stay in denial, as I'm afraid we have so far down this slippery slope? Well, I think Moeller's comments about criminalizing women were somewhat controversial um, inside the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. I think that there is a bit of a split um, among evangelicals about whether doctor, just doctors should be criminalized or whether women should be criminalized as well. Um, but Moeller is a hugely influential figure within this hugely influential denomination. And so I think his views carry a lot of weight, not just with Southern Baptists, but also with other evangelicals and other figures on the right. Um, So I think that we're going to continue to see um, efforts uh, in state legislatures um, to criminalize abortion. And, you know, we've seen it already attempts to, you know, put it, trying to put a teenager in Nebraska in jail, um, the effort to uh, criminalize a doctor in Indiana who performed an abortion on a 10-year-old rape survivor. I mean, these things, I'm afraid, are going to be much more common and that there are going to be a lot of people who try to get this codified in the law. Well, what are are some of the other overt goals in this reversing the revolution that Mueller talks about? 
Well, I think that the primary one is overturning Obergefell. Before same-sex marriage was legalized nationwide by that court decision, evangelicals in the Southern Baptist Convention specifically opposed LGBTQ rights of all kinds, not just marriage equality. But they really believed that marriage equality struck a, a, a real dagger in the heart of what they would say are, you know, family values or God's plan for the family um, or, you know, God's design for men and women. And I think the prospect of using the Dobbs decision to eventually overturn Obergefell is really quite real. Um, The religious right has made it very clear since Obergefell was decided that they're going to treat it very much the way they treated Roe that ultimately their goal is to overturn it, but in the interim, they're going to try to chip away at it to the extent they can in state legislatures and at the federal level. Hmm. Sarah, uh, the devil gets top billing in your headline. Who is the devil in this story? Well, the story is about how right-wingers took over the Southern Baptist Convention But that story is told within the context of this, these relatively recent revelations about this sprawling sex abuse scandal inside the Southern Baptist Convention, which has reached to the highest levels of the denomination, including the two architects of the conservative takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the headline comes from a quote given to me by Krista Brown who is herself a survivor of rape by a church uh, employee when she was a teenager in the 1960s and has been just a dogged advocate for survivors' rights um, in the face of just utter intransigence by the top leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I asked her about how she felt after being this kind of advocate for years and years, for decades, and how she felt about major Southern Baptist leaders backing and befriending Donald Trump, someone who is accused of rape and sexual abuse and even admitted to sexually assaulting women. And I'll point out that after the Access Hollywood tape came out in 2016, in which he admitted grabbing women, um, major leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention continued to back his candidacy. So I asked Krista about that. And she said, you know, these leaders have made a deal with the devil. But it's really bigger than that, really bigger than their alliance with Trump. They chose to cover up and sweep under the rug rampant sex abuse and vilify survivors who try to get accountability for it. So it really has a multi-layered meaning. Um, in the context of this piece. We need to take another break, but I'll talk more with Sarah Posner in just a minute. And later, the ambitious founder of a new nonprofit funding mental health care for survivors of sexual assault, Todd McKay. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. 
Are you close-minded? Do you love to hate others? Is your God small and vindictive? Then by all means, don't publish with us. I'm Mitch Randall, CEO of Good Faith Media. Our book publishing division is like our other divisions, committed to inclusion. We publish books by authors young and old, Christian and Muslim, male and female. Our books celebrate the compatibility of faith and science, the humanity of our queer neighbors, and the theological tools that broaden, not restrict, our thinking. Goodfaithmedia.org. Who we are is in our name. And if you've got a book proposal, we'd love to hear from you. Visit goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Jack Moline. Investigative journalist Sarah Posner's The Nation article is headlined, The Southern Baptist Convention's Deal with the Devil. Just like everyone else in America, there there really isn't anybody who doesn't know someone who has been a victim of sexual abuse. So if that is as true among Southern Baptists as it is among everybody else, how are the women of the Southern Baptist Convention putting up with this stuff? Well, I don't think there's one uniform answer, right? I mean, I do think that there are women who are current and former Southern Baptists who are outraged, infuriated, saddened, you know, you name the range of emotions um, that people might feel about um, something like this. But I also think that there are women and men in the Southern Baptist Convention who think that the tiny steps that they decided to make in terms of like reporting and accountability for sex abuse cases going forward was enough that, you know, people who perpetrate sex abuse, it's, you know, bad apples. Um, I, I do think there are a lot of people in the, in the denomination who, who don't see it as like the systemic problem that somebody like Krista Brown sees it as. Very interesting. A new Politico poll was released this week with the blockbuster headline, Most Republicans Support Declaring the United States a Christian Nation. The actual percentage is 61% of Republicans. Now, how much of this is the handiwork of the Southern Baptists and others like them? And and does this level of anti-constitutional belief further empower what I'll call the dominionists, if I'm not being hyperbolic? You're not being hyperbolic. Uh, an interesting uh, breakout of that poll that you mentioned is that when you look at uh, people who identified as evangelical or born-again Republicans – the number supporting this kind of official declaration of a Christian nation goes up to 78%. So wow. we're talking about a significant number. Um, I don't think that the Southern Baptist Convention was alone responsible for um, this kind of thinking about America as a Christian nation. It played a very important role in tethering the religious right to the Republican Party and to maintaining the view that their biblical beliefs need to be imposed on the rest of us uh, through policy and legislation. I think the single most important person in disseminating and perpetuating the Christian nation mythology is the political activist David Barton, 
who has written and spoken extensively based on his revisionist and false history that the founders intended America to be a Christian nation and that the separation of church and state is a myth. I think his role in shaping the views of evangelicals as a whole on this cannot be overstated. And so that now it is so widely disseminated through television, radio, conferences, books, um, schools, universities. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's so widespread that I think what you're seeing in that poll is the result of years of them just keeping at it and just continuing to press these false claims, even in the face of countless debunkings of it. In your article, you highlight how the extremism in the SBC sprang from an obsession with biblical inerrancy. That was not an original principle of the Southern Baptist Convention. How did we get from there to here? Well, basically what happened was the two architects of the conservatives called the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, which, by the way, Moeller sort of takes that language and suggests that there's been a conservative resurgence on the Supreme Court to his delight. Um, But so these two architects of the conservative resurgence or somebody like Welton would call it the fundamentalist takeover, does call it the fundamentalist takeover. Um, They basically sought to purge moderates and liberals from the denomination. And so they cloaked it in this idea of biblical inerrancy that like we are the keepers of the literal reading of the Bible And anyone who might deviate from that and say support gay rights or support women's rights or so forth um, uh, needs to be purged from leadership positions. And so they basically created, you know, they went around campaigning to get people to attend. They call them messengers to attend the convention and vote um, for leadership positions and vote the moderates and liberals out. Um, and in just a few years, they had accomplished their conservative takeover, and the you know the rest is history. They haven't they haven't looked back. Um, and at the same time, they wed themselves to the Republican Party, and they basically set the standard for other evangelicals, many of whom do not have a denomination. They may attend a non denominational evangelical church, and a lot of Southern Baptist leaders like Al Mohler are very influential even outside the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, let's let's look at that for just a second. The Southern Baptist Convention is not the entirety of the Christian right. How significant are other conservative evangelical groups in this effort? Well, they're significant, yes. Um, but I think that because it the Southern Baptist Convention is a denomination, and they can say we're the largest Protestant denomination in the country because they are. Um, even with their declining membership roles, they now have 14, roughly 14 million members down from like 16 million. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, they are the largest Protestant denomination. So, um, but, you know, evangelicals hail from smaller evangelical denominations. They hail from a vast array of non-denominational evangelical and Pentecostal and charismatic churches. And in these right-wing spaces, the 
theology and the political positions on these kinds of issues like women's rights and LGBTQ rights, you know, they're basically indistinguishable from that of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I think it was important um, for the religious rights marriage to the Republican Party that it was spearheaded and aided along by, you know, by the Southern Baptists and with being able to say we are the largest Protestant denomination in the country. Sure. The fact that the era of SBC history that seemed today as definitive, I, I guess, maybe even call it divine, is marred by serious criminal sexual misconduct accusations against the top leaders of the time. But it doesn't seem to matter. Doesn't that tell us an awful lot about the priority of power over actual morality? Absolutely, right? So the top leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention in the recent years, in the last 10 years or so, knew about a lot if not all, of uh, these uh, sex abuse allegations. In fact, they moved pastors and employees who were accused of sexual abuse around to other churches. They maintained their own database of employees. You know, they, they gathered from Google searches, church employees who had been arrested and charged with sexual abuse. They kept all of that under lock and key at their denominational headquarters. There was even an email uncovered in the investigation of the sex abuse, where one of the top leaders lashed out at the advocates for the survivors and said that they're, you know, it's just part of a satanic scheme to distract us from evangelism. So like sort of suggesting that anyone who came forward to expose and get justice for sexual abuse was part of some sort of demonic plot and acting as if they're imperative to evangelize took precedence over that. And I think it really just shows not only their political power within the Republican Party or conservative politics, but their power vis-a-vis the flock, that that was the preeminent consideration for them over the well-being Mm -hmm. of all of these survivors. Mm Mm-hmm. There's so much more in your comprehensive article than we can cover in this one conversation. But what do you want to highlight as as most important that will encourage our listeners to read the full piece that's in The Nation magazine? One of the things I think that kind of got lost in a lot of the coverage of the sex abuse that was you know, justifiably on the front pages of many national newspapers this spring and summer was how the architects of the conservative takeover, the people who insisted that they needed to purge terrible liberals and moderates from the denomination, those two people were implicated in this sex abuse scandal. One of them, Paul Pressler, is the subject of a civil lawsuit in which three men accuse him of sexual abuse and rape over a multi-decade period. Um, and Paige Patterson, who was was a seminarian, president of a Southern Baptist seminary, and was dismissed because of revelations that came to light where he was heard in a tape recording, um, talking about how women who were abused by their husbands needed to submit. You know, this is a big part of the conservative resurgence, the idea that wives need to submit to their husbands. 
and that while he was president of a different seminary, he discouraged a rape survivor who had been raped by a fellow student from going to the police. Um, And so these, while the Southern Baptist Convention was deriding and denigrating LGBTQ people as, you know, perverts and sodomites, the architect of the conservative takeover has been accused of raping men and grooming them in Bible studies that he led for young, you know, teenage men. And so it's just such a multi-layered, multi-decade story of, you know, corruption and abuse and the misuse of fundamentalist religion, that even though I knew the broad contours of it when I started working on it, I uncovered um, just historically so many little details that I had either never known or had just not remembered. And I think to put the whole story together in the context of both the explosive report detailing the sex abuse and the support by many prominent Southern Baptists of Trump and of overruling Roe, I think is just like a very important illuminating story about how we got here in the politics of the religious right. Sarah Posner is a reporting fellow with Type Investigations and an expert on the intersection of religion and politics. Her extensive reporting and analysis on the religious right in Republican politics has appeared in The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and many other publications. Sarah is the author of the books Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind, and God's Prophets, that's P-R-O-F-I-T-S, God's Prophets, Faith, Fraud, and the Republican Crusade for Values Voters. Her in-depth article, The Southern Baptist Convention's Deal with the Devil, appears in The Nation magazine, and we'll link to it from stateofbelief.com. Sarah, thank you for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. Over the past few decades, heartbreaking revelations of the sexual abuse of children in various religious entities in this country and beyond have surfaced, tarnishing reputations and collapsing membership numbers. And the epidemic of abuse transcends secular settings and all too often appears in family contexts. Spirits are damaged, trust is destroyed, and both are so essential to the recovery of abuse survivors, separate from issues of punishment and other consequences for the abusers. A successful leader in the tech industry, Todd McKay is just one of the many millions of Americans who has seen firsthand the impact that abuse can have but he's one of the few who have felt compelled to try mending some of the glaring holes in our national response to the needs of survivors, not with a decades-long campaign for reform, but with an urgent, maybe even obsessive, push to create a vehicle to help and help now. Todd, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. Tell me, what is the just-launched Help Hear, Heal project? So we formed this project as our, our family was directly impacted by sexual abuse. Um, and we realized going through our journey that um, unfortunately insurance companies don't cover a lot 
of the costs associated with healing. Um, our family was directly, I would say somewhere in the area of $9,000 or so out of pocket. Um, we were fortunate enough to be able to write those checks and get wow. the services needed. Um, and it kind of, as we went through this journey, it, it kind of, it just stuck in my head and it, it kept creeping up frequently um, that, you know, the, the cost of services shouldn't be a barrier to, to people healing. So um, last year, um, I kind of put pen to paper. We kind of, you know, vacillated between kind of what we were going to do for do to help people because there's a lot of amazing organizations out there doing amazing work, um, but no one directly financially supporting survivors that needed needed therapeutic support. So that's kind of where we kind of pinpointed this is what we're going to do. Um, so we got our five hundred one c three. Just about a year ago, we, we officially launched last week, um, and it was almost year to date from us getting our 501c3. We were very thoughtful on the members we would bring onto our board um, to make sure that we were successful and, and kind of move forward. Um, and in the last week, we've had seven inquiries uh, for services already. Wow. Why is it the direct support model that is the way to go rather than creating an infrastructure of some kind uh, that people can lean into? So I think that um, directly, you know, a lot of people give to bigger organizations. Um, they, they focus more around programming and so on and so forth. What we're looking to do is if you come in to helpheareheal.org, uh, we have a get help link. And within three to five days, you're going to have your first appointment. Um, I think that when you've decided to make that step, it's, it's urgent to, to follow up and get you in for those services immediately. Because I think that there's opportunity where, Maybe you're in a, in a specific moment where you want the support or you want the help, and then you kind of vacillate over days. Um, and a lot of therapeutic, you know, if you start calling around to, you know, yourself to individual, mm -hmm. individual providers, you may have a six month wait, and we're going to get that for you in three to five days. So obviously, it's it's more than just giving somebody a financial pool to draw from. What are the resources you're offering to those who need them? So we've partnered with ThriveWorks. Um, they have, I may not have the numbers actually definite, but I think 354 brick and mortar locations across the country and 3,500 um, online therapists. So we'll be providing trauma and, and you know, people specializing in, in sexual abuse and trauma. You know, one of the longest term casualties of child sexual abuse is trust. Why are you and Help Here Heal something of an antidote to that damaged sense of trust? So I think that from, again, where I've said we, it took us a year to put our board together is making sure that people that are on our board, um, you know, telling kind of as much as I can our story um, and just having the members on our board I think we only have one member on our board that wasn't directly impacted by um, sexual abuse. So I think that kind of that was a, a really important thing to me in terms of putting the board together that these, these are, these are folks that have been directly impacted. They've, they've gone down their journey um, from, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that bothers me most is that the, the survivor often um, will get oust by their family or whatnot, you're shaming our family by coming forward and this and that. 
So we kind of have a really good variety of people on our board that, you know, may have had that, may have not have had that, but everyone aside from two members um, have been directly um, impacted by that. It has to be heartbreaking to listen to the stories that you're asked to address and, and the stolen innocence that goes along with it. How is it that you and the other board members are able to maintain your equilibrium and help these children who really need it? Therapy. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we all participate in therapy as well. Um, but, you know, you know, I'm the CEO of the organization and one of my board members called me. I'm, I'm not the chief executive officer. I'm the chief emotional officer. There's not a conversation <laughs> I have where I generally don't cry. Like they're, they're heartbreaking stories. And I think that, you know, I'm humbled. Our board is humbled that we're in a position where we're going to be able to help people and change lives. Um, but yeah, they're, they're heartbreaking stories. And, and we've, you know, I think that the, the shame and stigma associated with sexual abuse on these, on these survivors, it's, we, we've got to change that narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. How can survivors of child sexual abuse who need help reach out right, right now for the help that they need? Yep. You come to helpherehale.org and right at the top, there's a get help link and we connect you directly with ThriveWorks. Um, we have a dedicated phone number. We have a dedicated uh, rep. They're, they're very familiar with what we're doing, with, with um, the sensitivity of, of what this caller or submission, if you do the online form, um, and, and kind of where, where that person's you know, mental state, if you will, is at. So we have a great team on the ThriveWorks side ready to help as soon as someone reaches out. And there's, there's no punctuation in help here, heal. Is that correct? We have a help and then there's semicolon help semicolon. Um, and that kind of comes in with, you know, with a lot of um, sexual abuse. Um, there's a lot of self-harm um, suicide. So we felt it was important to put that semicolon in, in, our, in our name. Does someone need to qualify in some way or is there a process for approval or is it just whatever people represent? You come in, you submit the form, you make the phone call and we schedule you. Um, if you have insurance, we're go we'll deal with that later. It's more about getting you immediate services. And then if you do have insurance, we'll, we'll you know, ThriveWorks will process that and do that later. But that's not a barrier to get your first or second of, um, appointment. Great. And how can listeners help support this work with donations as well as spreading the word? Absolutely. Um, you know, you can go to our website. We have a donate button. You can text the word HEAL. H-E-A-L to 801-801, and that will bring you directly to our donate page as well. I'm sure you have a vision for what Help Here Heal can become in the next year and in the next 10 years. What, what is it? So I think that, you know, and the immediate right now is getting people access to support, insurance, put it aside, let's get you and let's get you the support. But I think that further down the road is, we have a podcast series that's coming out to allow people to tell their stories. We'll also meet with, you know, have clinicians on and therapists on to kind of just talk about what journey, the journey may look like. Beyond that, um, to be frank, we, we want to take on the insurance companies. You know, I think that the insurance companies not covering this type of support is short-sighted. I think that long-term, if someone doesn't have access to these services, the insurance companies are going to pay out more in the long-term than if they just provide these services, give access to services that, that these survivors need. 
So I think that's, um, that's definitely something we're going to tackle maybe year two is start those conversations and see what we can do there. Yeah. And then I think, you know, also getting a program together where we can meet with whether it's colleges or even, even earlier, you know, maybe high school education, having these conversations and then flipping the dialogue of when I'm in high school and I do a semester of health, like, let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about, you know, survivors. I know statistically, I was recently at a high school to talk with a principal just generally about what we're doing and just walking down the halls and knowing the stats and saying, like, I've just walked past, you know, 30 kids that are switching classrooms and knowing that, you know, better than 50 percent of them in some way have been impacted by sexual abuse. And mm-hmm. in the school, we're talking about better eating and these things, which are important. But in terms of health, I think we need to change what, what schools are teaching in that regard as well. I want to uh, 100% support the confidentiality of the people who come to seek your assistance. But I'm wondering within those boundaries, uh, if there is a story of success that you can share that will give us heart about your your efforts and their impactfulness. Yeah, I think we have, um, and I think I can say this, she's on our board, uh, Bethany Lawson. She's an amazing human being. Um, she lived here locally where I live, recently moved to Nashville with her husband to start or continue their music career. Um, she's been, she's done a bunch of news interviews in the last couple of weeks. Um, and she, you know, got the therapeutic support and, and, you know, changed her life. And she, you know, we, we've had conversations and she gets incredibly emotional being, you know, honored and humbled to be able to, you know, to join us and, and help people that have been in the position she's in. Um, you know, no one's journey is ever over if you've been sexually abused. Um, but she's done incredible work and she's an amazing human being. And I'm, I'm honored to have her be involved with us. Getting the help and then paying it forward. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely. Todd McKay is founder of Help Hear Heal, a new initiative that provides victims of child sexual abuse with scholarship funds for essential therapeutic services to gain the skills needed to live a life worth living. The website is helphearheal.org, all one word, and we'll link to it from the stateofbelief.com website. Todd, I can't thank you enough for taking this time to be with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And if you need support, if you're willing to donate, we'd, we'd love to have you visit our website and, and get involved. Before we go, this is my last week sitting behind this microphone, though you likely haven't heard the last of me. It also happens to be the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. In synagogue, we will proclaim, Today the world was born, not just for Jews, but for everyone. We celebrate the occasion by renewing our relationships, asking for pardon, accepting apologies, and foregoing the demand that others somehow capitulate to our judgment. I'll call it radical forgiveness, and at least spiritually, it creates a clean slate for the year ahead. That's what State of Belief embarks on next week. And that's what I wish for all of our listeners. A good year and good listening. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. 
Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, go team. I'm Jack Moline. That's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.